I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on July 13th of 2014 under the headline, Oregon's Most Notorious Shanghai Artist, Bunko Kelly. Here we go. In the shadowy world of late 1800s Portland waterfront folklore, there is nobody who quite cuts the figure of a man named Joseph Kelly, better known by the nickname he carefully cultivated, Bunko Kelly. Kelly was a crimp, that is, one of those tough waterfront characters involved in the trade of furnishing sailors, willing or not, to ship captains in need of a crew. And he was also an easy liar with a real flair for a dramatic story, which means it's often difficult to tell his fact from fiction. In today's article, we'll explore the facts of Bunko Kelly's life as best we are able to know them. Next week, we'll turn to the spectacular legends that grew up around this unusually colorful bad guy. Kelly came to Portland on a sailing ship from somewhere back east either Liverpool or Dublin or somewhere in Connecticut, depending on who you asked, with his brother William. Almost immediately, he went into the sailors' boarding house business. Sailors' boarding houses were dingy, unsanitary hovels kept close to the waterfront in which sailors, visiting loggers, and vagrants were invited to stay on credit. Typically, a man would run up a bill for room and board that he couldn't pay off on credit, and he'd more or less be forced to discharge the debt by signing on to a sailing ship whose captain would pay his lodging bill as an advance against his future earnings. To be successful in the boarding house business required a few key elements, chief among which was a pair of hard fists. There was a reason that all boarding house owners were prize fighters or legendary brawlers. Rarely did a sailor go to sea voluntarily. A sailor's boarding house operator, known to his friends as a boarding master and to his enemies as a crimp, also needed to have a very high degree of what you might call moral flexibility. After all, the business was basically a human trafficking operation based on swindling people into indentured servitude just a whisper away from outright slave trading. That Kelly met both these requirements isn't in any doubt at all, as a number of appearances in the cops and courts listings of the Morning Oregonian during that time will readily show. Kelly kept a boarding house for a while, but seemed to prefer the life of a freelance underworld entrepreneur, chasing after anything that smelled like easy money. Throughout the late 1880s and early 1890s, he developed a reputation as a boarding master of last resort. When the usual boarding houses were empty, you came in desperation to Kelly who would go and find somebody to fill out your crew, often by finding, befriending, and shanghaiing some luckless hobo. This appears to be how he came by his name. In 1887, the skipper of the British bark Jupiter wrote a letter to the Oregonian complaining that the seamen he had hired through Kelly's good offices probably delivered to him unconscious and wrapped in a tarp, although he does not specify, was a, quote, perfect cripple by rheumatism, and referring to Kelly as Bunko Kelly. The name stuck, with it seems considerable encouragement from Kelly himself. 
As the late 1880s ripened into the early 1890s, the Portland crimping scene came increasingly under the control of a remarkably well-connected, socially polished prize fighter named Larry Sullivan. Sullivan and Kelly had worked together for years, with Kelly representing Sullivan's boarding house as a, quote, runner, a man who goes out to ships and talks the incoming sailors into staying at Larry's place. But at some point in the early 1890s, Sullivan discovered that he could make serious money by selling the services of every sailor in port at election time as a repeater or serial voter. Keeping that illegal money train chugging along meant keeping Portland's ruling Republican elite happy with his services, something it was getting hard to do with the flashy, notorious, proudly Democratic Kelly on his payroll. And Kelly really became a liability in 1893 when the doors were blown off the Blum Dunbar Opium Smuggling Gang, an industrial-scale operation that for a time supplied most of the opium to the West Coast with the help of Portland Chief Customs Official James Lotan, who happened also to be the head of the Oregon Republican Party. In a trial that held Portland spellbound throughout December of 1893, Lotan found himself facing serious federal corruption charges, and the whistleblower accusing him, Nat Blum, was one of Kelly's cronies. To make matters worse, Kelly, called to the stand as a witness for the prosecution, testified that he was, quote, in partnership with Sullivan. Lotan's party friends saved him from prosecution, but Kelly's involvement had probably cost Sullivan a great deal of money, and the two of them were bitter enemies after that. The end of Kelly's career as a Portland Underworld figure came in 1894, when Kelly was accused of having murdered an old man named George Sayers, a generally well-liked former saloonkeeper. Significantly, his co-defendant was Bob Garthorne, who had been one of the other key lieutenants in the Blum Dunbar Opium Gang. The prosecution alleged that the two of them had involved with Sayers in a scheme to swindle some Chinese people by selling them a large shipment of fake opium. Things had gone sideways, and Kelly had tried to solve the problem by shanghaiing Sayers. The attempt was bungled, and Sayers ended up dead. That was the prosecution's story. Kelly maintained to the last that it was a frame-up engineered by Sullivan, and that he had nothing to do with the killing, and there are compelling reasons to believe him. Sayer's body, when fished from the river, was still carrying his gold watch and some jewelry. Neither Kelly nor Garthorne was the type to let that sort of loot get just thrown into the river. Also, the suggestion that an experienced Shanghaier like Kelly would be unable to handle kidnapping a 73-year-old man is highly dubious. And also, it seems very unlikely that a pair of long-time opium pushers like Kelly and Garthorne would burn their bridges in Chinatown by selling fake dope, even if they'd had the skills and resources to make the little cans that opium came packaged in and to label them with the proper Chinese characters. But, innocent or no, the verdict was guilty, and after that, Kelly was shipped off to the state pen in Salem. This moment was the apex of Kelly's notoriety. Crowds thronged at railroad stations, hoping for a glimpse of Portland's most notorious bad guy. Kelly spent 13 miserable years in the joint before being pardoned by the governor in response to a petition signed by some of the same people who'd sought to put him away in the first place. He promptly set out to capitalize on his reputation with a book tour. Unfortunately, in the intervening 13 years, so much water had rolled under the bridge that few people remembered him, and he soon found himself crawling back into the underworld this time in San Francisco. Historian Barney Blaylock found a reference to him in coverage of a 1908 trial of a San Francisco gangster who, for whom he was apparently working. What became of him after that, I have not been able to learn. 
And that, in broad strokes, is the life of Joseph Bunko Kelly, the most notorious Shanghaier of 1890s Portland. You will immediately notice that there's not much to this biographical sketch that would justify such notoriety other than his wonderful nickname. That justification would come from less rigorous sources, less historically rigorous, that is. From the tall tales, the myths, and the stories of the old Portland waterfront, cleaned up and augmented and carefully spun by one of the most skilled storytellers who ever hung his black deerskin gloves and snappy fedora in the Beaver State, Stuart Holbrook. We'll explore those myths and legends in next week's article. Key sources in this week's article have included works by Barney Blaylock, the Portland Morning Oregonian Archives, and the Portland Evening Telegram Archives. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶